This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning, this is Ria Liu and it's time for That Strange Man. Well, there's a ghost in my house, according to Matt Armitage, a self-conscious robot, a shotgun-wielding man in hot pants, and penguins with accents. In other words, a normal week for Matt. Uh, so as much as I want to talk about penguins, which is something that my son loves, are there any Twitter updates this week? Oh, well, he should be really happy with the penguin story then. Um, so th- that'll definitely be for him. But yeah, uh, so the the Twitter issue. So we're recording this a bit earlier than normal. So there may be more news after the recording. Uh, so I won't go into detail, save to say that um, at the time that we recorded this, Twitter had put in a, a motion to expedite its trial against Elon Musk. Mm. Uh, it wants to proceed in the next few weeks, I think within the next couple of months. Musk, of course, has counter-petitioned, so he wants a delay until next year, I believe. But in the meantime, the SEC, the uh, Securities uh, and Exchange Commission, is also looking into the takeover and has requested a clear statement from uh, Elon Musk to demonstrate that his intentions to buy the company were real, that this wasn't all some kind of elaborate who knows what. We can expect this story to run and run and run, <laughs> and we're already at the point of not caring. Right. Um, but, you know, at the, on the subject, I think, of, of not caring, uh, this year Netflix reported its first drop in subscribers, and the company has lost, I think I've got this figure right, more than $60 billion on its market value. Wow. Now, is that because we've reached peak Netflix or that people are feeling a cost of, you know, living squeeze? Well, I think I think it's a mixture of both. You know, I think we all Netflix and chilled ourselves to death during the early part of the pandemic, except for the folks at BFM uh, who didn't get a chance to Netflix and chill. Um, but streaming services were a, a genuine lifeline during those first few months when yeah. millions of people were, you know, physically confined to their homes. So there is that element of enough already. And yes, of course, there are those cost of living decisions, especially given the level of competition now in the streaming sector. That's been further added to this year with the launch of Paramount Plus in the US. And it's got this, it's a fantastically strong opening lineup. It's got all of the Star Trek shows. It pulled Discovery back from Netflix. It's got Picard and it's got Strange New World, which I haven't seen, but a lot of people really love. Other original shows on the network that are being critically lauded include Yellowstone, the mayor of Kingstown, Halo, which of course is the tie-in with the game, and uh, a show called The Offer. And that's on top of HBO, Disney, Amazon, Hulu, you know, you you get the the idea. At the same time, uh, the pandemic disrupted the production of a lot of shows, so subscribers have had to wait for longer to see the return of their favorite shows. Um, I mean, let me ask you, are you a Stranger Things fan? I am. I love it. Thing is, I, I'm also I also love Ted Lasso, which is on Apple, but I don't have an Apple, so I actually have to watch it at someone's device. But yeah, no. But t- uh, Ted Lasso has got to be one of the nicest shows that's been made in the last however long. I mean, it's just absolutely lovely. I mean, I hate football and, right, I know. and watch that I know. show religiously. <laughs> you know. Um, but anyway, I mean, back to that that Stranger 
things for and, and saying we had to wait longer for for the mm. shows to come back. I mean, we had to wait so long for season four of Stranger Things that right. you know the uh, Jonathan Byers, who's supposed to be a final year high school student, he looks more like one of the parents, and it's not surprising because the actor who plays him, twenty eight year old Charlie Heaton, has an eight-year-old son, which right. is not far off the age that the kids were supposed to be when the show first aired. But anyway, that's that's my ranting done. Um, but yeah, in terms of Netflix and the subscribers, to address its declining audience share and that potentially uh, lower revenue growth, Netflix has been developing an ad-funded tier with a lower monthly subscription. Uh, recently, it announced that it would be partnering with Microsoft to deliver the targeted ads for the platform. Uh, and I know most people will be saying, why Microsoft? And, you know, I get that. Uh, a lot of people are still stuck in the Microsoft equals Windows and Office kind of mindset. But as we've talked about on the show, a lot of times Microsoft is you know, it's among the leaders in so many other fields, cloud computing, data management, gaming, virtual reality. You know, we laugh about the people who are binging mm. their searches. Uh, and we still talk about Internet Explorer, despite the fact it was replaced years ago. But Microsoft is essentially an entirely different company from the one that we remember from the early days of the Internet. Right, right. From, from way back when, you know, when we were, yeah. you know, younger. Okay, that... Okay, that aside, right, when you think about Microsoft, though, and you think about Apple, right, and they've also gone yeah. into the space, right? So why yeah. not Microsoft? So, But was Google in the running? Yeah, I mean, it was there with NBC Universal, um, which is understandable because Microsoft, despite all of these advances in other areas, it's not known for having great video ad capabilities for those delivery systems. What seems to have tipped the balance is Microsoft's purchase of AT&T, the telecoms giant in the US, which gives the company ownership of AT&T's Xander programmatic advertising system. So that seems to be what they've bought into. There are no details yet when we're likely to see that ad-assisted tier or how much it's going to cost. But given some of the forecasts on its revenue growth, I'm guessing that Netflix will be pushing to roll it out as soon as possible. So who knows? In the future, maybe we'll all be Bing watching our favorite shows. <laughs> Bing watching. Okay, was this story in elaborate set up for a very weak joke? Um, it's a genuine story, but I couldn't resist that awful pun. Um, uh, you know, so far the weird stories haven't been very weird. I mean, the Elon Musk one is weird. They always are. Netflix partnering Microsoft, that's kind of unexpected rather than bizarre. Um, if you want a really weird story, just go and search for Delta Dental. There's a 13-second video clip of a man who celebrates U.S. Independence Day by firing a shotgun into the air while standing on the back of his truck wearing cowboy boots and extremely short shorts. After shouting how happy he is that his country won independence from the U.K., and, you know, who wouldn't be happy about that, he then shouts, Delta Dental at the huh. end of the clip for no apparent reason. So, you know, has he won independence from dentistry? Is Delta Dental his cynical overlord? Nobody seems to know. But you know it's what? It's a mystery. You, 
you will start searching for Delta Dental after that. After so, okay, this, yeah. Let's zoom out from that image into the James Webb Telescope. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of listeners will have seen some of those first images over the last week or so from the James Webb Telescope, uh, beaming back shots of previously unseen galaxies. Uh, one of the first images showed a cluster of stars from a galaxy 13 billion light years away um, from a time in the universe's history that it's speculated that the stars were formed in a very different way, where they were mostly comprised of hydrogen and helium, so that they would be much larger and more volatile than our own sun and have a tendency to collapse quickly into supermassive black holes, which just goes to prove that not everything in the past was the good old days. Uh, but, um, you know, one of the things I found amazing about the images were those vivid colors. So I started to do the nerd thing and look up how the images were taken. Um, because, you know, with things like radio telescopes, for example, when they take images, they're actually just radio waves. And we use algorithms to turn that data into something that resembles a photo for us. So I wanted to see how the uh, web telescope worked. To my own, I guess, dishonor, I, I knew that the Hubble telescope was a space telescope, but I'd never bothered to check how it worked. So the James Webb telescope operates in the infrared and the near-infrared spectrum. The images it captures are actually black and white. So the lens is fitted with a series of color filters, which create those images that, of course, you can view on NASA's website. Right. And I, and I saw them, actually. No, OK, so shall we back up a little, explain the project to people, where the camera is, how it got there, what's it for and who James Webb is? Yeah, of course. So James Webb is the guy who won a competition to sit on the moon with the camera taking the photos. No, I'm, I'm joking. Obviously, there's <laughs> nobody sitting on the moon. Um, James Webb was the guy who ran NASA throughout most of the 1960s from 1961 through to 1968. So that was the critical period of the space race between the US and the Soviet Union, which culminated in the small step for man in July 1969, or the week that Stanley Kubrick shot a sci-fi movie in a warehouse, if you believe some of the rumors. Mm. Um, so NASA named the Hubble replacement in his honor. It was launched in December 2021 and has just become operational. Uh, it sits at the Lagrange point at a halo orbit roughly one and a half million kilometers from Earth which is far, uh, far enough to keep it out of both the moon and the Earth's shadow. But what's really remarkable is how well it works. It reached its orbit, it deployed its shields, it deployed its solar array, um, and everything worked pretty much perfectly. So the Hubble needed a few trips from astronauts to fix it, to get it working properly. But the web is too far away for fixes. Um, it's further than any human has ever gone out into space. So it had to work from the start. It's already been struck by micrometeors a number of times um, because collisions with uh, space debris remain one of the biggest ongoing challenges for the telescope. But so far, the strikes haven't created any operational damage. Right. Was was that video about 15 seconds or something that you saw? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Right. And it's like, what? 13 million years and, 15, you, know, the, that, you know, that's just quite mind boggling. Right. But wasn't this discoveries that sure that what would be 13 billion years in 15 seconds? It's like, whoa. I no, I, I know. And just seeing that that transition and being able to zoom mm. in and out through mm. all of that, that 
history of the universe, essentially. It is absolutely mind-boggling. You know, we take a selfie and we think, oh, that's amazing. Now we've got images of the past. Okay, so what are some of the discoveries that scientists are hoping for? Well, as well as seeing further into the universe than ever before, we will also get a better idea of the atmospheres of planets that are a little bit closer to us. So one of the discoveries, um, and I think it was actually from a test image that was taken of Jupiter, revealed water vapor and clouds on one of Jupiter's exoplanets. Now, the planet had previously been surveyed by the Hubble telescope, but the spectral image that the James Webb took confirmed the presence of water on the planet. And that presence of water, uh, knowing on what planets it's there, will give us a better indication of which planets are capable of hosting life. Um, mm. Not that that's any reason for the Elon Musks of this world to suddenly start planning colonization missions to these planets with water, um, but it will give us a better sense of the odds of there being uh, planets that bear some form of you know, bacterial life out there. Um, but scientists think that the most exciting thing that the telescope will uncover are new mysteries. There are already things in that current first batch of images that were unexpected or that we can't yet explain. Uh, we saw in those images the Carina, which is a swirling dust cloud that acts as a star nursery. So these are the building blocks of the stars. And there were curving structures within those images that the scientists simply couldn't explain. So that's what makes it so exciting. There's all of these things out there that we haven't even imagined yet, but that have existed for billions of years. You know, I, I haven't gone into too much detail about the technical side of the launch and the structure of the telescope, but it is worth reading about. Details like the shields that protect the telescope from the sun's energy, otherwise the lens would be simply flooded with radiation, so there wouldn't be any infrared uh, signals. And we've parked this more than a million kilometers away in space. It is so amazingly ingenious. Now, it's always tradition to have something wacky to round out the weird on these shows. Penguins, Matt? Yes, the penguins. I didn't know, but apparently penguins have regional accents. <laughs> so we've we've long known that whales, bats, and some species of birds have local dialects. Huh. New research, yeah, new research from the University of Turin suggests that even within the same areas, penguins in neighboring colonies may have linguistic differences from one another. So the team recorded calls from three different African penguin colonies over a span of three years. They then matched certain calls back to birds who were mates and who were friendly with one another. They discovered that amongst family and friends, the frequency and amplitude of the calls tended to converge. It became more similar. And this might make it easier for the penguins to find family members in right. that crowded colony, because maybe penguins think all penguins look the same. <laughs> um, this kind of vocal accommodation, though, is thought to be highly unusual in species. But the discovery could mean that it's actually present and a lot more common than previously thought. And understanding it could also help us to understand how our own languages evolved and on what kind of timeline. So maybe all of those accents in Penguins of Madagascar weren't as silly as we all thought. Right. And of course, you know, the ones from Australia will go, g'day. When we return, <laughs> Matt Armitage will be back on the AI trail. Stay tuned. BFF 89.9.
Best for Money. BFM 89.9. Good morning, this is Frida Liu and I'm here with Matt Armitage as Matt's Planes is where we were talking about penguins and telescopes and what have you earlier on and now uh, we're back on the AI trail. So are you back to tell us that the machines are self-aware? Well, actually, yes. So listeners may remember a few weeks ago, we covered the story of Blake Lemoyne, a, a former software engineer at Google, who believes that one of the company's experimental artificial intelligence machines, a, a conversational neural network called Lambda, sorry, general intelligence AI, had developed self-awareness. Now, we spent most of that episode pointing out the fairly substantial reasons why Lambda probably isn't self-aware. But we also covered comments from some scholars who maintained that general AI is trending in that direction. Uh, last week, I saw a story on New Scientist about a robot that its builders are claiming has created its own self-awareness. Uh, the developers are a team of engineers from Duke University in Columbia in the US, and they've created a machine that can plan how to move itself in order to achieve a goal. But isn't that essentially what robots do, Matt? Yeah, but usually we program them to do those tasks. So there's very little room for autonomy or deviation within those systems. You know, that's why it's so dangerous for humans to be around um, industrial robots on a production floor, for example, because unless the robots are equipped with the sensors, you know, they're generally not looking over their shoulder for a fleshy, beady-eyed manager to approach them. You know, something that's programmed into humans by default. And, you know, in those battles of meat suits, versus machine, you get the idea. Their machine creates the equivalent of a mental image of itself and figures out how it should complete its task. It's this ability to imagine itself and map its own movements that has given its creators cause to claim that it is self-aware. Now, when you say it imagines itself, do you mean it in a philo philosophical sense? No, I mean, I don't think we need to go there. You know, that's Blade Runner, do androids dream of electric sheep? territory. No, I mean, this is a, a robotic arm. It views itself on a number of cameras. It sees itself from different angles. The cameras feed into a neural network that controls the arm. And when they set it up, the arm moved around randomly for three hours and it fed information into the neural network about where it is and how it acts in physical space. So that generated over 7,000 data points and the team augmented that with around 10,000 more data points that had been generated in a virtual simulation. So when they tracked the neural network's perception of what it thought the arm should be and where it thought the arm should be and where it actually was, they found it was accurate to around 1%. Hmm. And that's probably more accurate than my own <laughs> estimation of where my limbs are at any given point in time. So, you know, in, in terms of self-awareness, I know that doesn't sound very threatening. And the researchers acknowledge that we're probably at least two decades or maybe more away from general artificial intelligence being self-aware in senses that are more kind of recognizably human. So is there any scientific consensus over the claims? Well, the paper's still new, and obviously it is a really bold claim. So some detractors have claimed that it's not really aware of its own shape. It's simply modeled its movements in the shape the camera has informed it to. So it's, it's not aware of its shape, it simply acknowledges that that is the shape it has to control. So it doesn't have that idea of self. It's still a programmatic execution. 
Others have questioned whether the machine would be capable of completing the same tasks in a different mm. environment, whether if you change the variables, it could successfully overcome those new parameters and obstacles and still do that modeling in real time as those parameters alter. That would equate more closely to something closer to self-perception. Right. But let's switch from robots that are aware of themselves to machines that can read our minds. Would you be happy with a, a robot that could read your thoughts? I've seen too many movies, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll be glad to hear that the story isn't quite okay. about a machine that can do that. Actually, it does something that's way stranger and seems a lot more spooky. It recreates images from our brainwaves that we don't see. Uh, so it isn't reading our minds to find out what we know. It's reading our minds to find out what we don't know we know. Mm. Um, this is research from the University of Glasgow. It uses a principle called ghost imaging. And genuinely, I think this is amazing. Uh, in their experiment, a, a test subject wearing one of those weird EEG brainwave hats was uh, placed in front of a white wall next to a wall painted gray. The gray wall was there to obscure the subject's view of an object and a projector that sat behind it. The projector used a special computer-controlled pattern to shine onto the image. So then there would be reflected light that appears on the white wall and is then diffused around the room. But there isn't enough linked information for us, for the subject, to identify what that object is. There are just these kind of random elements of it. However, the neural net processing the EEG data is able to create a 16 by 16 pixel image of that object from the information that's stored in our brains. So it creates an image from all that ghosted information in our mind. Right. So how can an AI access information that our own consciousness is either overriding or ignoring? Well, as people know, I like to look at humans as machines. So from a machine standpoint, we don't have the processing power to instantly translate all the information that our eyes and other senses are feeding to the brain. We've talked about it on the show before in relation to self-driving cars. It's our ability to both process information and action it in milliseconds that makes our brain so powerful. So that means our brain has to filter those inputs. It's one of the reasons that our, our recollections uh, of the same event can differ. One person might more vividly remember the smells or the colors. Someone else might remember the sounds. The way we witness something might be the same, or the act that we witness may be the same, but our experiences of it aren't because all our brains are processing the information in those different ways. In the same way that one person experiences a roller coaster as a thrill and another person is terrified. So a lot of the information we see gets filtered to our subconscious. It's not discarded, but it's used to support the images we perceive rather than overwhelm them. This ghost imaging technique allows the neural network to piece together some of those subconscious stimuli and transfer them into a useful image. Okay, so what types of uh, practical applications are likely to come out of this? Well, a lot of the stories we cover relating to AI are about their assistive potential rather than their ability to replace us. And it seems mm. that the intentions for this would be similar. Obviously, 
you know, those EEG caps are not the uh, most practical real world accessory. Although now that Balenciaga has those face disguising airflow masks out, who knows, maybe we'll see a a Kardashian rocking a brain interface at next year's Met Gala. So there could be applications where we uh, have to react to visual stimuli very quickly and precisely. You can imagine the kind of military and law enforcement potential, but I'm hoping that isn't the researcher's first thought. Um, Perhaps it could be used to prevent, you know, those itchy trigger fingers from shooting the wrong person, though I imagine they'd probably try and use it to hit the right person faster. Um, But it is really fascinating. You know, I, I kind of wonder if the same techniques could be used to enhance memories as well, you know, uh, whether we store all of that additional information. The researchers want to see if the system can handle inputs from multiple people at the same time and see if that speeds up the identification of the object. But yeah, you know, this is so cool that the ghost in the machine in our heads. Should we end with uh, some photosynthesis? Why not? You're on a roll. (laughs) Okay, in some ways, this might be the weirdest story of the week. This is from uh, IFL Science. Uh, And it's a story about how we can now create photosynthesis without light. Whoa, okay. Yeah. Um, This is a project from the University of California, Riverside. They've created a more efficient process for turning solar energy into food than by traditional photosynthesis. Um, I think the the calculation is something like only 1% of the energy from the sun actually ends up being stored in the the plant. So they used an electrocatalytic process to create acetate, which of course is the basis of vinegar. They did this, uh, they created it from carbon dioxide, water and electricity. The acetate can be fed to food producing organisms, which can then grow in the dark. So you're using that, that assistive system to replace the biological photosynthesis that is usually required. As well as being more energy efficient, it also opens up other potential avenues for growing food. I mean, we've seen that that rise of indoor vertical farms uh, to, yeah. uh, with the lights and whatever and the hydroponics, but those are very energy intensive. This could represent an alternative, even potentially allowing us to grow food in space. Yeah, so the team started with uh, yeast and fungi. Um, So far, rice, canola, tomatoes, and a bunch of other varieties of crops have all demonstrated an ability to be grown like this. Another avenue is to breed crops that can accept acetate as a kind of booster to increase crop yields as well, so to assist with traditional photosynthesis. Uh, And it's even being explored uh, as a potential way to increase carbon sequestration to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So yeah, who says we should be afraid of the dark? Wow, this is uh, mind-boggling and and, and interesting, right? Without lights, that's, and the food potential down the road. Of course, Matt, always exciting, always, you know, enlightening. And you can find Matt on Instagram and Twitter at CultureMatt, that's K-L-T-U-R-M-A-T-T, or subscribe to the Culture Pop newsletter on Substack for more information about these shows. And yes, he will be back again next Friday. This is Enterprise BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.